Gospels just stole my thunder about uh, where we're reading from. Very famous story. So Luke 19, verses 1 to 10. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was. But because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Well, let me add my welcome uh, to Paul's. My name's Rod. If you are new or visiting, it's great to have you here tonight. Uh, We're working through Luke's Gospel through 17 to 19 over this term, and we've reached this famous little section, which we know well, but which has a lot of challenges in it for us to think through in terms of its application for ourselves. So will you pray with me and ask that God will help us to really grapple with his word tonight and live in light of it. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can gather freely tonight. Uh, We thank you that you've granted us your word, which is living and active, and judges even the attitudes and thoughts of our hearts. And so we pray that you would do your good work in us tonight by your Holy Spirit, um, challenging us where need, but also encouraging us uh, where needed also, that we might live in light of your word and respond rightly to Jesus and his mission. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, not all those who wander are lost. It's a famous saying that Gandalf uses in Lord of the Rings, but it's often used by adventurers who like going bushwalking uh, to talk about um, their plans on social media. But for those who actually venture into the unknown, explore the natural wonders of our world, and then get lost or are unable to find their way out, that saying can quickly lose its shine. And in Australia, our bushland is quite beguiling, but it can be difficult to navigate, and uh, many people do get lost. It attracts people that like to challenge themselves. A recent investigation found that on average in Australia, almost one person per day gets lost in the Australian bush or in the outback. Most are eventually found safe, but of course there are worst case scenarios where people vanish without a trace and are never seen again. And for those um, family members who face such um, a terrible predicament, Um, who are seeking answers, 
uh, for what's happened to their missing loved ones, the search for them often continues long after the official search has ended. It holds out this hope that their loved one might yet still be found. A survival expert and instructor Bob uh, Cooper argues that it's very easy to get lost in the bush in Australia. And if that does happen, it's the first few hours that are crucial in terms of the survival rate of the person. He puts it this way, if you get emotional when you're lost, and most people do, then it tends to block off common sense and the person will start making decisions that don't gel reality. Now, search and rescue crews are actually very well trained in Australia and more often than not, they will find the missing person because they are well trained at seeking out the lost. And as we consider this well-known story tonight about Zacchaeus, we've got a man who was lost and then was found. A man who was spiritually lost, but who meets Jesus. And the big question that I want us to consider tonight as we look at this story is how can the lost be found? How is it that the spiritually lost can be found? We've got two answers to that question tonight. And the first of them is this, by seeking them out. An obvious statement, but by seeking them out. Notice what we see again from Luke 19, verses 1 to 4. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. And so he ran ahead, climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. Remember, uh, last week we looked at the preceding episode of the blind man where Jesus put his healing touch upon a man who could not see. He regained his sight, but he also came to faith in the Lord Jesus. And he was taken from being a social outcast, from people ignoring him, to being brought into Christ's kingdom, having new life. Well, in this interaction, we have another example of a social outcast, but it's not because of some physical disability, but rather it's because of his occupation. He's a tax collector. And Zacchaeus is not only a tax collector, but he's a chief tax collector. And that means he stands at the top of the pyramid and he gets a commission from those that are under him that are going and collecting tax on his behalf. So he's collecting extra, but he's also getting extra from those that are working for him. And furthermore, a chief tax collector, usually under the Roman system, had the opportunity to pay the expected revenue beforehand and then to recoup what was needed to cover that upfront cost and also to allow for profit for himself and for those that were working for him. And you can see that such a system is obviously open to abuse. So often these tax collectors got far more than was required by the Roman government. And because of their relationship with the Romans, they were often therefore despised. Fellow Jews hated these people. They really looked down on them. And this is seen in the frequent association that we get tax collectors mentioned with in the New Testament. Uh, back in Luke 7, we get the phrase, tax collectors and sinners. You know, you can just bundle them in together. Or um, a couple of weeks ago, we saw Luke 18, where Jesus is telling the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And you may remember the Pharisee had this prayer partway through, if you can call it a prayer, where he says, thank you, God, that I'm not like these other people. And then he rattles off these other people that you don't want to be like. Well, who are they? The robbers, evildoers, adulterers, 
and even like this tax collector. And so the assumption is that these people get wealthy because they're cheating their fellow Israelites. And so it's with good reason that their neighbors resent them and often bitterly. And so just imagine this man Zacchaeus. Jesus is coming into his town of Jericho. Verse 3, he's trying to be able to get a glimpse of him. Jesus is well known, obviously, by this point. He's done lots of miracles and teaching. Comes into this town. He's on his way to Jerusalem where he'll lay down his life. And this man wants to see what the fuss is about. He wants to get a glimpse of Jesus, but he can't. He's obviously taken a slow reaction to what was happening in town. Being so short, he should have got out early on the roadside, so he was there before the crowds. But it seems he's coming a bit later, and he can't seem to force his way through. He can't see Jesus. Now, you can imagine the crowd are not going to let him through. He's not at the top of the list of people to help. And so they're going to be pushing him back, if anything. And so he thinks, well, I'm never going to be able to see Jesus like this. He runs ahead and climbs a sycamore fig tree, which has a short trunk and low lateral branches, easy to climb. He can get a bird's eye view of Jesus. And so that's what happens. It's probably a good spot for him to be because he's avoiding the glare of the people and they're muttering about Zacchaeus even turning up to see Jesus. And we see him take this initiative. But you've got to imagine, um, for a rich man, a man of his means and the standing he had, this was an undignified approach. Uh, to run along and climb up a tree, it's not a good look, but he's curious. He's really wanting to see Jesus, and so he takes this unlikely step. Now, I think with all of that, we might read the text and think, well, it's really Zacchaeus that is chasing after Jesus. He's showing such great initiative here. Well, certainly he's curious, he's, he's, he's made a great attempt in climbing the tree and so on. But I think a lot more is going on. There's nothing in the text so far that suggests he's actually seeking salvation. He wants to see Jesus. But it seems if he got a glimpse of him passing by, then that would be enough for him and he could go home happy. He just wants to see him. And so he has no intention of coming down from the tree. He doesn't expect to be seen by Jesus. But let's turn back to the text and unpack this moment of significance that then happens from verse 5. Notice what happened next. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and they began to mutter, "Ah, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. I mean, this kind of scenario is astonishing to everyone. It would have been astonishing to Zacchaeus, but the townsfolk can't believe it. But did you notice here, it's Jesus who is initiating this unlikely encounter. It's Jesus who seeks out Zacchaeus. He's the one taking charge of the situation. He goes and invites himself to the despised man's house for lunch. Now, we might view it as a chance encounter, but I think like last week with blind Bartimaeus, it's very clear that the only reason Jesus is spending time in Jericho is because he wants to interact with these people. He has come purposely to spend time with Zacchaeus. And so he stops. Notice it's Jesus that stops at the tree who calls Zacchaeus down by name, seems to know him already, who is bent on intervening in this outcast life. In response to this, the crowd are not happy. As I mentioned, they're 
eyes are seeing Jesus being willing to be entertained by a sinner, somebody who they thought was beyond God's reach. I mean, to have a meal at somebody's place is to acknowledge them. More than that, it's to accept them at some level. You don't just go and break bread with somebody unless they're a worthy person. Well, that was how Jewish culture worked. And we could imagine that nobody goes to Zacchaeus' house to eat except for other tax collectors. No one would have asked to come to his place for lunch. You can imagine he's shot down out of this tree. Here's his moment. Jesus, the most important person in town at this moment, wants to come to his place. Unbelievable. Which just makes the reaction of the crowd an even greater contrast. Zacchaeus seems excited. The crowd are definitely upset. They're muttering. I mean, how could Jesus go to this guy's house? This is so off script. It's infuriating for them. It's probably downright offensive to some of them. Because as these people lined along the roadside to see Jesus, Zacchaeus has probably cheated all of them. And they're angry. Why would Jesus go and hang out with this guy? Doesn't he know who he is? Jesus does know exactly who he is. You see, what Jesus is doing here is deliberately crossing social boundaries. He's seeking out a man who is spiritually lost. He's going to great lengths because that is how the lost are found. You see, in 2015, uh, Reg Fogarty was found alive in remote bushland in Western Australia's northern goldfields after surviving six days without water. It's impressive. 62-year-old shooter, he managed to survive after he became disoriented by lying under a shady tree and eating black ants. He'd been on a hunting trip about 170 kilometres east of Laverton uh, when he left the campsite that he was sharing with his brother. And he attempted to chase down a feral camel, as you do, I guess. Uh, the alarm was raised by family members the next morning because he hadn't returned, and it sparked this huge land and air search. They spent six days trying to find this guy. They brought in indigenous trackers. They found his footprints from the campsite. They were eventually able to find him. But he ended up 15 kilometres from his campsite, and when they found him, he was not well at all. The superintendent said of the police said he was extremely dehydrated a bit delusional but we were able to provide treatment on the ground and then see him taken on he didn't have any equipment with him after taking off after this camel and had become disoriented and lost and it's fair to say in the past week it has been extremely hot here well he's fortunate to be alive the royal flying doctor service took Mr. Fogarty to Kalgoorlie Hospital, and he survived. Well, why do I tell you this story? You see, this is how the lost are found. They're sought out in such physical rescues. Many people, many resources are committed for days on end. No rock is left unturned, pardon the pun. It's a matter of life and death. If they don't get there soon enough, he's not going to survive. But isn't it the same spiritually as our eternal destination is at stake? 
those who are spiritually lost must be reached out to for whatever length of time, no matter what the cost. Is that how you think about your non-Christian friends and family members, your work colleagues, your sporting teammates? Are you constantly thinking about how you might reach them, speak to them about Jesus, present the gospel to them? Do you go to great lengths all the time about this? Or is that kind of attention, that use of your time and resources, something that you would only do for other things? Are we seeking the lost as Jesus was? That brings us to a second answer. How the lost found? Well, not only do we need to seek them out, but secondly, by the lost truly repenting. By the lost truly repenting. Notice what happens next in the story. Verse 8. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay them back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. It's usually assumed that there is a time gap here between verse 7 and verse 8. It's not imagined that he immediately came down out of the tree, having not spoken to Jesus at that point, and then suddenly announced this. It seems that they've had some discussion. Perhaps he went back to his house, Jesus having invited himself home, and they had a meal and spent hours of conversation. We don't know. We're not told what the time gap is between verse 7 and verse 8. But what we do know is that at some point, Zacchaeus announced what we have in verse 8. He produced this heartfelt response of change. He announced that he would no longer cheat people, that he'd no longer be greedy and selfish while ignoring the needs of the poor around him. This wealthy tax collector had seen the errors of his way and he's renouncing his materialism, his dishonesty, his greed. He's got a completely changed mindset because he has repented. And he's offering to pay back four times the amount if he's cheated anybody. And you bet he has. He's picking up the restitution laws in the Old Testament. There's an example in Exodus 22 verse 1, that if you stole somebody's sheep, then you had to pay back if you were caught with four sheep. So this is what he's doing. You say, well, I'll pay back four times any amount that I've taken from anyone. But then he says, I'll give away half of my possessions. And nowhere in the law is that ever required of anybody. Jesus certainly didn't ask him to do it. He simply offers it. Suddenly, he's welling up with generosity, wanting to give away his wealth. In verse 7, he's universally known as a sinner, so that the whole town is muttering about him and angry with him. And in verse 8, you've got this amazing statement of repentance that he's going to give away most of what he has. Here is a radical change of character. And it's demonstrated by concrete actions. Now, before COVID, uh, we were able to visit uh, the United States as a family, and we went to Disneyland, as so many do, that travel over to the US. And while we were there, uh, we went to California Adventureland section, 
And in that, it has a ride, Guardians of the Galaxy. It's based on the Marvel comic. And it's uh, an accelerated lift ride. You know one of those things where you're up 50 metres in the air and it just drops out of the sky and plummets down? Fantastic ride. Um, uh, my eldest, Harry and I, we lined up for over an hour, perhaps an hour and a half in the line. And we finally got into the lobby. We're about three or four people from getting on the ride. And they announced, sorry, ride's closed for the rest of the day, maintenance. Oh, oh, come on, like we've been here so long. Another 10 minutes and we'll be through. We can do the ride. And so we walked away sadly thinking, well, here's our one chance. That's the last day we're going to be at California Adventureland. We're going to miss out on that one. And we'd gone on the other side of the park. We were looking at other rides and so on. But they have an app which brings up rides that are open or closed. And suddenly it pops up that Guardians of the Galaxy is open. Can you believe it? They've repented of their decision. They've changed their <laughs> mind. And they're going to allow us to get on it. But, of course, the proof of repentance is whether the concrete actions actually happen. You know, we have to see this for ourselves. Were they just making it up? We had to go back and see. It was open. We lined up. We got to go on it. We fell 40 meters. It was fantastic. <laughs> so good. Now, I know that's a flippant example of repentance, but that's what repentance means. At heart, it's a Greek word that is metanoia. It means change of mind, to simply change your mind. But when it comes to a spiritual decision like this, it's a change of mind that is your whole worldview. It's a change of mind spiritually where we were rejecting God and now we're receiving Him as the one in charge of our life. And so that change takes something to have happened inwardly, a change of heart, change of mind for a person to think differently, and suddenly there'll be repercussions for all relationships. And that's what we see here. Horizontal relationships with other people was the key. As suddenly, he's wanting to give away his money, wanting to help poor people. He's wanting to give back to those he's cheated fourfold. But is he just doing that to impress Jesus? You know, maybe he's just going through the motions. He hasn't given the money yet. Maybe this is just words and it's empty. It's not true repentance. How do we know that there's really been a change here that is leading to him speaking this way and talking about these great things. Well, the answer for us in this passage is verse 9, because Jesus himself pronounces that Zacchaeus has come to salvation. He says, Zacchaeus this day is a true son of Abraham. Now, son of Abraham is a phrase that was often used by Jews. It just meant you're in the line of descent from Abraham. Every Jew was. So you could all claim that. But Jesus had already taught in his speaking to people that when he was speaking about true sons, he was meaning those that had the faith of Abraham, not somebody that was just claiming descendant. And so here was somebody who was expressing such faith, Jesus is saying. Of course, Paul even uses this expression of Christians in the New Testament. Have a look at Galatians 3, verse 29. Paul said, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And so what we have in verse 9 is Jesus celebrating Zacchaeus' salvation. That's an amazing moment. He's confirming the words that he has spoken in verse 8. These words of repentance and change have flowed out of a real faith. Now, this is remarkable because remember a couple of weeks back, Jesus himself speaking to the rich young ruler who comes up to him 
seemingly the perfect citizen, obeying everything. And Jesus asks him to give up his wealth and he cannot do it. He walks away sad and Jesus says, how hard is it for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God? And the disciples are like, well, who can be saved? And Jesus says, well, nothing is impossible with God. Even things that seem impossible with man are not impossible with God. And here is exhibit A. Zacchaeus is such a rich man. And yet he has entered God's kingdom. A radical change has taken place. Nothing is impossible. What we've got in Zacchaeus is actually a model response to the good news. If you're here today and you're not sure where you stand with God and you wonder what it would look like to respond to his call on your life, look at the example of Zacchaeus. What he represents is repentance and faith. These are the things that need to happen. We need to repent of our old life, our sins and our rejection of God and our rebellion against him where we say, look, I'm in charge of my life, not you. Thank you very much, God. We repent of that and then we place our faith, our trust in his son, the Lord Jesus. Because it's through Christ's death and his resurrection where he bears our sin, bears all those wrong things, that we are forgiven and set free and have new life in Christ. If you haven't made that step, let me encourage you to talk to somebody about that tonight. It's such an important decision. Well, Zacchaeus made it. But I want to say to you, more important than even the events of this wonderful story in verses 1 to 9 is the principle that Jesus lays down in verse 10 at the end of this section. Did you notice those great words in verse 10? They provide a further corrective to wrong thinking about Christ's kingdom. We've been talking about this over the last few weeks. And so many people, including no doubt many of those that were lined up on the roadside in Jericho, thought hey, we're here to follow Jesus so that we can see something impressive happen in Jerusalem. Maybe he's going to throw out the Romans, take charge of the city. That's what we're looking for in the Messiah. But Jesus says in verse 10 that his mission is to seek and save the lost, just like this despised tax collector Zacchaeus. And I'd imagine that that didn't go down well with a lot of people that day. Because they were wanting to see Jesus do something else. And if Jesus had gathered the crowd together and said, I, I know that this is what you'd like to see me to do, but let me tell you that my mission is to come into your town and to seek out somebody that you absolutely hate, like Zacchaeus, and spend time with him and see him come into the kingdom. That is the kind of king I am. Do you want to follow me? Many people would have walked away. That was not what they were looking for. But that was what Jesus was about. This is his mission statement. I have come to seek and to save the lost. He's the good shepherd. He's the one that goes after the lost sheep of Luke 15. That parable where you leave the 99 behind and you go after the one that is lost. That's what Jesus is doing right here. And it's a fulfillment of themes that have been piling up throughout the Old Testament as well. One classic Verse is a sequel, Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 16, where God the Father states, I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. How is God going to do that in the nation of Israel, in the world? 
Well, he was going to do, his, do that through his son, the Lord Jesus, who had now come and was doing just that in the example of Zacchaeus and many other people's lives. Here are the lost being brought in. That's wonderful. This is the servant king. But it does beg a question for ourselves as we finish. We need to grasp that this is not only a summary statement of Jesus' ministry, but it's also a summary expectation of those who would follow Jesus. See, unlike the religious leaders of Israel, Jesus doesn't judge people according to their job description or their outward appearance. He doesn't condemn the lost. Rather, he calls everyone to repentance. Whether a person is religious or irreligious, whether they are sick or healthy, whether they are rich or poor, it does not matter to Jesus. Everybody is in need of saving. Everyone needs to come to Christ. But the question is whether we have Christ's heart for the lost. Is that how we think about those around us? Do we show the kind of desperation that's involved in seeking out the lost? Uh, back to our holiday in the United States a couple of years ago, um, we spent three nights in New York, and one of those nights we went and saw the musical Aladdin in Broadway. It was fabulous, we had a great night. Uh, the show finished about 10.30 p.m., and although we were only staying in a hotel about eight blocks or so away, and you could possibly have walked there, this was December, it was pretty cold, it was a damp night, we thought, oh, we'll catch the subway home, it's only a couple of stations and we'll be there and uh, that will avoid a whole lot of hassle in getting back. And so we did. And it's one of those train trips where you hardly sat down and you're standing up again because you're there straight away and you're like, oh, this is our station. And so we quickly stood up again, ready to get out. But when we got to the door, there were an elderly couple in front of us uh, who were ready to go at their station, weren't working it out like us. And they took a long time to get out of the doors. And by the time the first in our group, our elders, Harrison got through the doors, bang, they smashed behind him on his backpack and he was sort of jammed in the door and so we pushed him out with his backpack. So he was out on the station but the other four of us are stuck inside the train. And so then we're turning to these couple of American guys that were on the carriage at this late hour and we said, look, can we get the door open? Is there a guard or whatever? And they said, no, it's all automated. There are no guards. There's nothing you can do. All you need to do is um, go to the next station, get off, catch a train back and then find him. Right? Okay. They did warn us too that when you get back, there's like, you know, 20 platforms, and so you probably won't see him initially, and you think you've got no clue where he is. Right. Okay. So, next 15 minutes, I think it took us to get back. That was pretty frantic. There was a lot of fervent prayer, uh, a lot of texting, uh, a lot of worrying. And eventually, we got back and we found him safe and sound on the station. What could go wrong? 11 p.m. at night, subway in New York. Very thankful to God. Why do I tell you that story? Well, we may display fervent prayer. We may display all our effort if a loved one of ours is physically lost. And that's good and right. We shouldn't have done anything else. But do we show that level of attention and effort caring for the spiritual state of those in our lives? We can be really desperate and show a lot of energy at those crucial moments, perhaps. 
with some physical need. But do I look at those around me in the same way? And we have to learn from this passage too. There's a warning here, isn't there, about how our society judges our association with others, but Jesus views things differently. If Jesus had listened to the crowd about Zacchaeus, he would never have stopped at that tree. He would have despised him like they did and just walked on right by. But that's not how God views people. The church has to be the means for restoring the lost by seeking them out. Not those that remain isolated and stay away. And when I say the church, I don't mean just um, coming to a Sunday service like this, although that can be wonderful. But I mean us as the church community going out day by day, Monday to Saturday, in our workplace, in our study, in our sporting team, in our hobbies, whatever it is we're doing, in those scenarios, are we those people that are constantly reaching out, seeking those who are keen to hear about Jesus, who need to hear about Jesus? Are we willing to risk the awkwardness that comes with that at times, the difficult conversations perhaps, the uncomfortable invitations in return where we're not quite sure uh, what we're being invited to, but we're going to that extra length, we're going to that extra effort because we want to make connection. It is so important. It's life and death. You know, our commitment will see, be seen in how much time we spend, how willing we are to talk, to just hang out together, waiting for that moment when we will have that opportunity to share something of our testimony, the amazing things that God has done in our life. And when we get that opportunity to share, God can use that powerfully. Now, by all means, think about inviting them to the Easter services in two weeks' time. And think about inviting them to a Christianity Explored course that will run in different lounge rooms. The Matthews will be hosting one. Anna and Carissa will be hosting one. We're going to have one at our house. I'd love to sit down with you and your friend that you invite and we, as we walk through the gospel over seven weeks. That would be wonderful. If they're ready at that point, then by all means invite them and come with them. But perhaps they're not at that moment yet. They're still in dialogue with you and you're the one person in their circle that can have the conversation that no one else can about your faith in Jesus. Don't miss those opportunities to seek out now of course god ultimately does the work of saving it's his work to draw a person to repentance and faith but he uses us as his instruments he employs us as it were to seek out those around us so that we might be the means through which people hear the good news that has brought us salvation are you committed to that? Are you following in the steps of your Savior who said that his mission is to seek and to save the lost? Let me pray for us. Now, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you that he demonstrated so clearly 
in the example of Zacchaeus and in many others besides. That he shows no prejudice. He sees everyone as needy. Everyone as someone who might hear the good news and respond. Our Lord, help us to be such people. Strengthen us by your spirit, we pray, that we might be your ambassadors, be those who are on your mission, a mission that you've commissioned us to be on. Lord, grant us courage and commitment. Help us to show that kind of zeal that we will show in so many other settings in our lives that we might see people hear the good news. If we ask it in Christ's name. Just, uh, just before we have our, our final uh, uh, hymn, I uh, just want to announce that we have got quite a few numbers tonight, so unfortunately uh, we can't sing the last song together. Uh, so if you could refrain from singing, uh, but the band by all means will be, be just as good. Uh, but unfortunately, just because of the current restrictions, uh, the numbers don't allow us to sing together. Um, so I'm, I apologise for that. It's disappointing, but never mind, we have to follow the rules. Um, isn't that just an amazing story of Zacchaeus and how his life is completely transformed by this encounter with Jesus and seeing Jesus and getting to know that incredible unconditional love just overwhelms his heart to the point that he wants to give away everything he has and uh, give up his, his life to follow Jesus. And our final song tonight is When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. And if you listen to the lyrics, it could be written by Zacchaeus after this encounter, but I think it could be written by any one of us if we are followers of Jesus and if we have that true change of heart as well and uh, that feeling that we just want to give everything we have to follow him. And it's such a beautiful song, so I'm sorry you can't sing with us tonight, but hopefully Lily and I can do it justice and you can sit and reflect on the beautiful words. I think you're allowed to hum. Or dance. (laughs) When I survey the wondrous cross 